This is the Talk Theater in Chicago interview podcast. I'm your host this week, Anne Nicholson Weber, and today we're going to be talking about the production of Yucare at Raven Theater, um, a very late play of Tennessee Williams, which hasn't been much produced. And joining me to talk about it are Cody Estel, who was the director, and Lucas Brazierfons, who was the dramaturg. And then later in the conversation, uh, Ray Toller, who is the set designer, is going to uh, join us to talk about the really wonderful and effective set. Um, but to start with, I found the, the play, just having an opportunity to be exposed to this play um, by a great, great American playwright um, and a relatively unknown work, a really wonderful opportunity. And I wanted to talk about um, kind of how it came about and some of the history of the script. So, um, Cody, you could start by just telling me how it came about that you directed this play at Raven Theatre. Sure. So, uh, the artistic director, uh, Mike Menindian, one day brought up this play and was like, hey, have you ever read this play, View Carre, uh, by Tennessee Williams? And I said, no, I've never even heard of it. Uh, and I Googled it and was fascinated by the synopsis that I found, bought a copy of it, and it was really late one night, and I opened this play and could not stop reading it. Uh, I read it in one sitting, and I remember as soon as I finished, I took this big breath, and I called Mike, and I was like, I have to direct this play. And he was like, okay. Uh, and and about a couple months later, I directed a, a reading of it here at Raven. Mm -hmm. And from that reading, he decided to, to produce it. it. Yeah, great. Well, so maybe, Lucas, you could talk a little bit about why it is that there's this, as it turns out, I think, really good play by a great American playwright that people have never heard of. I think it's because... In its original inception, in the original Broadway production, it was... The, the last critical success of Tennessee Williams was in 1961 with Night of the Iguana. Mm -hmm. And Tennessee Williams died in 1983. And in those 20-plus years, he didn't have a single hit on Broadway in that time. So his plays were not put through as rigorous of a workshop process. They were not taken as seriously, critically, at the time. And View Correa, originally on Broadway, closed after five performances. And mm -hmm. it was not a success. I think, in retrospect, looking at the critical responses to that production that had a great deal to do with the design team and probably a Broadway uh, rehearsal process not giving the play the, the, the time and saturation process mm -hmm. that a work uh, of this kind of curvilinear denseness really deserves. What it's, do you mean by curvilinear denseness? Well, it doesn't... Well, something I talk about... It, this play really does not structurally adhere to to conceptions and notions that we have of the... Of, of like the, the fry time pyramid idea of drama, mm -hmm. nor does it, um, and it it recycles a lot that Williams has used in his earlier work. We see characters who we you get okay. Well, I can see how when you started writing this play in the '30s, uh, that character would kind of branch out and take a fork in the road and become both Stella and Blanche. Mm -hmm. I can see where that character becomes Stanley. I can see where that character becomes Amanda. But this play. Well, does let me let me stop you there because sure. I think we need to tee that up better. So this play was. Finally produced in the early this is 77, 77 is when this opened on Broadway. But what you were just referring to is that he began to write it in the boarding house that the play takes place in at 722 Toulouse Street. And in that New was Orleans. back when? Uh, 38 and 39. So it was actually his first? It was really early on. He had written some short stories before that. Uh -huh. But the, the idea being something me and Cody have talked about that 
this play picks up right where Glass Menagerie ends. So in like terms he, of his so biography. Tom leaves the tenement, goes to New Orleans, mm-hmm. and here and we are in the right. Vucare. But it was started before he wrote Glass Menagerie. It was, though not finished until much later. That's That counts for some of the dramatic difference between the acts, mm-hmm. where the first act builds in a more um, upward-ending progression, and the second one kind of lingers on a lot of pain and suffering that he would have probably been focusing on his life at that time, Ser- being seriously at rock bottom with, with drug and alcohol abuse was something At the end of his life. Vi- yeah, suffering Do we know for a fact that he wrote the first act as a young man and the second act as an old man? We don't know that for a fact, but mm-hmm. we know that he, this is something he came back to, and to me that just seems structurally likely. And that's uh-huh. what he would have been most interested in at the time he would have returned to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I certainly, my experience of it was that the first act wasn't as strong as the second act mm-hmm. as artistically mm-hmm. um and there's also a, well let, let's talk a little bit more about the production history and then we can talk more about the script so so there was this broadway um production in the late 70s mm-hmm. that was essentially a disaster it was and then it went to london with a mm-hmm. new director and that is actually in the published version of the script the broadway production is not credited as being the original production. It is the the London production, which was a critical success, uh-huh. and it spawned a couple other um, productions. Um, but, the, but the production history of this play has not been extensive. The noteworthy productions recently have been... Um, Austin Pendleton has actually had uh, a really unique history with this play, directing it all the way back in the 80s, acting it several times, and directing it at the Pearl and at Mississippi Mud, I think it was, this past this past couple years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this, he's kind of a champion of it. He is. Mm-hmm. I would say he's... I think he, he gets to be the champion of this play, uh-huh. having done it multiple times at this point. Uh-huh. Well, and the, the thing that... Walter Kerr pointed out in, in his original review in the New York Times was uh, he panned it because of the direction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a year later went to London to see uh, the second production and raved about it mm-hmm. under a different director. Mm-hmm. A discerning uh, critic to be able to actually... See. Doesn't he yeah. say something in his review like, I would give it another try or something? Yes. Like, is yeah. it a good play? Probably not, but I think the, I mean, the jury Jury's is still out. out at that point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think, too... I could at least guess that um, when a playwright who's had the uh, acclaim of you know someone like Tennessee Williams begins to write in a different tone, maybe a different key than mm-hmm. his great well-known works, mm-hmm. people may be less receptive. I don't know how you feel about that, Cody. Do you see it that way? Um, I. I, I, I do. I can see what people are saying about the structure of the piece and how it's... Um, I mean, directing this play was a beast. I mean, mm-hmm. I literally felt like I was wrestling a bear to the ground. Mm-hmm. And um, Well, that, I, but, what I think people... And again, this is not so much my idea, although it mm-hmm. rang true to me when I read it, but people have said, you know, he wrote much more operatic works in sure. his sort of middle yes. period. Bigger, more happens, very, you could say, melodramatic. Um, and this piece... Really, nothing happens much, right? I mean, it's just no. very quiet and sad. <laughs> yeah, it's a series of vignettes more yeah. than a, a full dramatic. That, and that's arc. what you meant yeah. when they said, it's, "What did you call it?" The I, I didn't know the phrase you used. The Fulbright. Tri- oh, the fr- <laughs> Freitag pyramid. <laughs> right. Freitag triangle. That's not an yeah. expression I know. What is that? Uh, Freitag was a, a German theorist, as uh-huh. all as many great theorists are. Theorists right? are. Uh-huh. He was German, uh, and it was the idea that the play there's the. The stasis, it's, it's just what we call the stasis, the inciting incident, the rising action, the climax, right. the falling action, the denouement. So it's, it's classic dramatic structure, the structure. arc that we talk about exactly. all the time. And this play is not about that. This not play is about tone and atmosphere, right? 
Well, and the journey to follow is is through the writer. I mm-hmm. mean, when he walks into this boarding house, uh, he's wide-eyed and vulnerable and uh, allowing his experiences to give him a backbone and mm-hmm. shape shape his life, I guess. So he goes from a mouse when he walks into the house to a, to a lion at the end and having all of these experiences, he mm-hmm. now can leave. But not only can he leave, but he, can't, he has stories to write. Mm-hmm. He comes into the house with no stories. Right. He now has a gazillion stories from these insane, insane uh, inhabitants that he lives with. Right, right. I find an interesting... Um quality of this play as with Bless Menagerie is the narrator and honestly it's a very tricky thing to try to make theater subjective. I mean it's kind of the nature of theater that it's objective. We we sit here and we just watch it happen and we draw our own conclusions. By creating a narrator character we can think that maybe this is kind of what happened. It's what he remembers that happened. It be- mm-hmm. makes it more subjective. So of course that makes that character um crucial and he's Tennessee Williams and probably in both in this play and in Glass Menagerie. I wonder if it really is. Do you, have you dug at all to see if there's anything that isn't factual or autobiographical? Well, he just it, we have mostly his word to go off in relation to something like this. We know there was a Mrs. Wire who is the landlady in this play. Uh-huh. That is something that is true. Um, and he talks about two young people, writing about two young people, which is Jane and Ty, uh-huh. the, the, who would later morph into um, Stella and Stanley, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sometimes and, and partially Blanche. Mm-hmm. I, in doing the research for this play, one thing I did find was that he mentions Oshner's The Clinic, which also comes up in Kedna Hot Tin Roof, I believe. Mm. And technic- that's something where his memory obviously failed him in the composition of this play, since that was not a clinic that opened until a couple years later. Yeah. But that's just one of those things that it, rather than there being a lot of fact checking being able to be done on his memory, uh-huh. we just have his word in this well, it regard. What doesn't matter and at all? And this is his perception right. Right. of himself exactly. in at this crucial artistic juncture in time, right. looking at it as an old man, looking back on his uh, what was obviously a very powerful metamorphosis for him right. as an artist, as a young man. And that's what. It's well, and, and Nightingale is based on a, a real person, and mm-hmm. but a, he's much older in the play. Uh-huh. So I think you see his young self through the writer, and you see his old self through Nightingale. Through Nightingale. Yeah. Even though Nightingale, yes, is based upon someone else, there there are there have been liberties taken. Right, uh, right, to tell the story he needs to tell at this point in his life. Exactly. Well, so another, for me in the audience, a really fascinating part of my reaction was, I walk into a play and I'm in a 1940s boarding house, and I know it's Tennessee Williams, and he's young, and so I kind of feel like we're in 1940s, and yet the aesthetic, well, really just almost, I would say, the politics of the play are much more modern than that. I mean, the use of... Um, just swearing for the characters and some explicit sexual acts on stage, which you know would never have happened in a play produced at that time. The dialogue is 1938. The play wants to be 1970s. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So true. So it's a it's a very um, surprising juxtaposition, I feel like, of these two aesthetic times. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder if that also had something to do with its failure in its original production, because it, I would think it was still pretty shocking to have, you know, what it was it in the late seventies on Broadway. Well, well, I wonder if it was given a chance to be shocking. It may have been mm-hmm. in some in some right. I mean, because this is the first play where it's really it's really explicit that, about being an openly gay character. Right. Not that he didn't have that in much of his early works, but it was all kind of 
as we saw the movies, as we saw the place turn into movies under this kind of veneer of what the Hayes Code and the censorship at the time. But I, I can't really attest if this would have been shocking to a seventy-seven audience. Uh, yeah, I. I An mean, explicit, explicit homosexuals. Sexual act on stage. I don't and know. It's the, you know, the, right? it's the second scene. Yeah. It's like okay, we've Tennessee. just barely turned up. And yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's post boys in the band already at this uh-huh. point. We've already seen that. I don't. But but, but seeing, I don't know. I mean, yeah. seeing seeing a blowjob on right. stage in the second scene. I mean, it's just still sitting a little here. Shocking, it is. I, think, I mean, yeah. sitting here, sitting here in previews and watching the audience. Huh. I mean, they, you know, the first scene happens. Everybody leans in. By the end of that second scene, everybody has leaned back. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. What yeah. is going on? Right. Uh, right. But um, so that's the. I think that what world are we in? That aesthetically yeah. or dramatically? I think that's one of the interesting challenges for the audience. But mm-hmm. also, what I think makes the play so engaging is as you as you kind of wrestle with that and think about. Mm-hmm. The worlds that he lived in, the two different, or not two different worlds, but the world he was born into and the world that he left. Mm-hmm. Quite a, a change. Well, so, Cody, talk about then, that, um, because I, we've said, or at least I've said, and you may agree with me, that it's about atmosphere, it's about mood, it's this very um, t- small shifts of tone that make it, that make the structure, because mm-hmm. he doesn't have a plot structure in the same way. So talk about, when you when you said how hard it is to to direct how much of it is about that and what other things made it challenging um well i think i think one of the very first lines that the writer says is that this house was once alive Mm -hmm. and something that stuck with me is that this house has to continue to live and breathe Mm -hmm. uh when when a scene pulls focus the house doesn't go away uh Uh so the house sort of becomes a character in the play uh and each actor in their separate rooms uh, had to continue to live and breathe and um, watching the focus of the scene, but also making sure that, like you say, the tone and the atmosphere is continuing. Mm-hmm. All these people become very sick and uh, in their own way slowly start spiraling uh, mm-hmm. uh, to a, to an end position. Right. Uh, That's the, such an obvious thing, but I didn't actually think about it. They're all sick. Yeah, <laughs> right. they're all very... Yeah. It, it, it's it's a sad place to be in. Yeah. Um, uh, but but you can find I think humor through through the the situations that they get themselves in. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But allowing it to uh, allowing the focus of the scene to move the play, but continuously making sure that the journeys every journey for every character is continuing right. and that we continue to see that. Right. And we're yeah. going to talk later about the set because I can um, see how important that was then in your conception of the play. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Cody, what else would you say about um, wrestling the bear? Um, oh, well, I think making sure that that it's each scene is being is being played uh, for in that moment, so that each each little glimpse that we get of each of each character of each scene is put together so that this collage effect is happening mm-hmm. so that you do feel forward movement. It's got to keep going. going it's got to keep going. Right? And, and, and like, yes. And where is it going? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the tricky thing was for the, the two roles that were tricky is, is, is the writer mm-hmm. making sure that he goes on a journey, making sure that he does go from that mouse to a lion and, and the role of Jane, um, uh, who, at, when I started this play, I sort of felt like uh, the the main character was the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, 
by the time I finished it, I think the main character or the, the, the focus that I keep, my eye keeps going to is Jane. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and that role is tricky because she, it, she's, her journey is from sick to sick to sicker. You yeah, know, she just right. keeps dying. And right. It's, it's allowing her to fight. And Eliza Stoughton is an incredible actress and, uh, is, it really jumped at the occasion and was like, I'm going, I'm going to make, I'm going to tackle this with you. Mm-hmm. And the two of us really, really worked together to find the right balance for that role. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing that I just kept pushing for was, uh, honesty. Um, the, the, the characters are tend to, tend to, they can lend themselves to being big and in big comes, um, I start distancing myself, and I, mm-hmm. I, I think the, the important thing is that at the end of the play, you have to care about all of these people. You have to care about these people in this basically a sane asylum. Are there any like almost technical things you can say about what a director does when faced with a play that is somewhat static to create that movement you're talking about? I mean, what, what do you do? What do you change? What is your palette to work with? What mm-hmm. are your tools to work with to solve that problem? I mean, casting really good actors is... is yeah. Step one, you right. know, but um, I think the really great thing was that we had the space that the the set was up um, about a month before mm-hmm. we opened, so it really allowed everybody to uh, explore. Yeah, and f- one of the things that I kept saying was um, to really live in the house. Mm-hmm. You have to start believing that you live in this house. Right? I remember one day at the end of rehearsal, I was saying how it's one thing to, 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 to walk through your paths. You have to now live your paths in this house. Uh-huh. It's this really, really lovely, monstrous set. Uh, and, and we need to use every nook and cranny of it and uh-huh. uh, start living in it. So. This seems like a great um, mm-hmm. transition to bring Ray in, who designed the sure. set, and say goodbye to Lucas, who is uh, going off to graduate from uh, Columbia College. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us. For me? Yeah. Thanks. Um, so, Ray Toller, who uh, designed the set. Um, and it's, as Cody has been talking about, it's a, a big deal for this production to have a set that works. And I, um, how many rooms do you have on stage? Well, there are, uh, eight, there, there are eight different acting areas on the set. There are mm-hmm. three down on the main level and five up on the, on the top level. We have... Uh, the two rooms in the attic. Uh, we have the the suite where Jane and uh, Ty live. We have the kitchen. We have the hallway. We have mm-hmm. a, a hallway between the rooms. Mm-hmm. We have uh, outside the front door. So there there are a lot of acting areas. This uh, entire set was sort of a, a geometry lesson to to figure out how you could do the placement of everything on mm-hmm. the on the stage and. Besides the fact that you have a lot of rooms, you have a lot of levels because it's the attic and the main floor and the it's all part different parts of the house, almost like a house in X-ray. So. Uh-huh, right, right, right. Well, so you've worked on the Ravens stage before, right? Oh, yes. Uh, I've been designing sets for Raven for about 30 years. And I imagine that's an advantage when you are faced with a technical challenge like well, this. Well, I don't know. Every you know every set's its own thing, but uh, yeah. uh, you have to find a way to uh, make it work. The The set is, is usually visually 
dictates the visual style of the play. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you might, when I did Bus Stop here, I went with extreme realism. In this particular set, no, we don't really have walls. We, you know, we have hanging windows. Everything's fragmentary. But this right. is a memory play. And we only want to show stylistically what the writer remembers. So consequently, we'll have a, a, a kitchen on the set, but we don't have a, an icebox or we don't have, you know, right. we have Just only what we the need. items that are needed that would have stuck in his memory right. uh, for this play. So did you, so talk about either one of you sort of describe your first design meeting, what was said, what was, what did you see as being the problems you were going to have to solve at that point? Um, our first design meeting we met, and I think the thing that I expressed to Ray from day one was just uh, um, the decay of the piece. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be really, really dark and sad and falling apart. Yeah. And uh, and Ray ran with that idea. Um, so what are some elements of the set in your mind, Ray, that reflect that concept? Well, obviously the set is all decayed mm -hmm. and, and the plaster is falling off the walls and, and everything. But I also chose a color scheme uh, for the play that with a purple backdrop. And it's it's a complementary color scheme. So we have a purple backdrop. The, the rest of the set is more towards a yellowish color. Mm -hmm. And it gives you that... that that contrasting color gives you the a lot of the tension and the atmosphere of the mm. of the entire piece. That's interesting. This is a real house. This uh, 722 Toulouse Street, and it still exists today. Did you look at pictures of it? Oh, oh yeah, we looked at pictures of it in the in the actual time period. But uh -huh. it, in the modern day today, it's still there, and it's a, a museum to American writers like Dennis Lee Williams. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So uh, last time I was in New Orleans, I I actually saw the place. When was that? And when you saw when you were designing or earlier? Oh no no this was ago. this was a couple of years ago. Uh -huh. And uh, I actually saw the place and, and then did not realize that I was going to be designing a, a set it for it. But, yeah. I mean, the set is completely different looking uh -huh. than the actual building because, I mean, the building is pretty nondescript. It's just a square building. Mm -hmm. It does have the two arches up on top. Uh -huh. And uh, so, I, you know, I incorporated that into the attic rooms. But uh, in this particular set, each little room is kind of its own perspective it's it's not logically a house for example like the the attic is not over above, the front right. door or, right you know the the mm -hmm. wind the front windows are not above the front door mm -hmm. and so each little this is a madhouse they say it in the play yeah <laughs> yeah so each room is kind of its own little perspective yeah and do you mean literally geometrically when you say perspective yes yes so what so specifically what, what well for example in the in the attic rooms you see the windows and the arches facing upstage facing back mm -hmm. logically if that I were a real house it would have been above front. the front door right. facing the same right. way so the elements are there but not in a logical connection let's say. correct yeah, yeah. Kind of floating only, almost. only logical where they necessarily need to be right. like uh, jane's room and 
the writer's room mm-hmm. or across the hall from each other, and there are scenes in mm-hmm. that hall. Mm-hmm. So that has to be. But uh, this is an unusual play. When you, whenever you design something by Tennessee Williams, he generally writes a volume in his script about what he envisions the set to yes. look like. Yeah. It's usually impossible to do that. Right. <laughs> and maybe not even advisable if you could, right? Right. Well, like, for example, in this particular play, he, he suggests that the entire play just be done in pools of light with mm-hmm. no walls and no doors, mm, maybe possibly a door frame. Then he writes scenes where she puts things in the refrigerator. She hangs uh-huh. pictures on the wall. You know, you know yeah. so he... He describes it in one way, and then he writes scenes that that Couldn't don't apply that to way, that right. at all. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost like, in this particular play, it's almost like a movie script because you jump around to right. different, right. different locations and different views. Right. Is that all done with lighting, Cody? What else can you use to change focus? I mean, people start talking, we look at them. Is there anything else that you do? As a director? Um, one of the things that I would say to the actors is that really grab the beginning of every scene mm-hmm. um, so that so that it's, we're not relying just on the lights. But mm-hmm. um, our attention immediately gets pulled to the right to the right place. Yeah. Well, so so you had this and, and I would say that you've totally realized the concept of both the the craziness of it and and the sort of transparency almost or the incompleteness of it. Mm-hmm. Um when you said those things, I recognized both of them from my own experience of the play. So, oh, great. <laughs> um, so, so after that first design meeting, though, I imagine there was still a lot of back and forth. What, oh, what yeah. were the problems that you, you know, what, what was the time when you were tearing your hair out? Either one of you. There are a lot of uh, different design elements in this play that are difficult to realize on stage. For example, we have a lot of freestanding door frames. Mm-hmm. That's extremely difficult to do on to stage. Build, to build, just to keep them solid. To keep them so they don't yeah, wobble right. when somebody slams the door. Right. We have other special effects in this play. People have to pour water through the floor. Right. Uh, the, the police. Water. The, <laughs> yeah, the, the police break in the door and we see splinters. Uh-huh. Uh, Flying, flying around. So there, there were some technical effects that we had to incorporate in this play, and then a lot of it was just figuring out geometrically how everything, Could you fit. know, how everything related to each mm-hmm. other, and how how it was going to work. So, what is the solution to keeping a door frame solid? Well, <laughs> on this one, we, we've got different solutions for each door. I think some of them we uh, cut holes in the platforms and brace the door. The, the framing of the door all the way to the floor uh-huh. uh, under the platform. So you, what you see as the audience, you see the door frame sticking up. It's just but a small you don't part know, of the structure. Right. Yeah. But the structure goes beneath the platforms mm-hmm. and, and is uh, bolted all the way to the floor. Uh-huh. Uh, other other problems where this is a rough play on a set because you have drunk guys that fall against the, the staircase and people fall down and they're there's fighting and running and uh-huh. a lot of different a lot of action in this play that's uh-huh. that's sort of rough on a on a set it's it, this is almost like a a farce set where uh-huh. uh, a lot of slamming doors a lot of slamming yeah. doors and, and stuff like that mm-hmm. but uh, and, and that's obviously a problem but uh What's the solution for that? Just got to use stronger materials. Stronger materials. We built this, this set's built like a tank. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Another another issue with this set is that Raven um, they have children's classes here during the uh, during the days and on weekends, 
And they usually do that. There's a, a red curtain in the front of the stage that they close off, and they usually have the children's classes on the, in front. the mm-hmm. yeah in front of the curtain. This set sticks down in front of the curtain, so that created a problem for Raven. So we designed the set. What the audience doesn't know is that whole set folds back up onto itself. No way. Yeah, and uh, and to, to make room for the red to curtain make for the for, classes for the other. Yeah, but that took a lot of engineering to figure out. Was there anything else, Cody? When I asked about the tearing your hair out that Ray hasn't mentioned, it. I think the thing that that Ray and I just kept going back and forth about was was how to make all of these things happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's really difficult. It's just complicated. Yeah, just lots of little problems. L- little problems, yes. Uh, that that and, and how to do it on a on a budget, of course. Right. Um, but you know, and sometimes I think the hard thing for me is always, okay, well, we just won't have that because uh-huh. we can't have that. Right. Uh, and and then you know, uh, for a day I'm pouty, and then I realize like it it doesn't matter. It's right. actually it, it's not it's going even forward better. the story. Yes, of course. Less um, is sometimes really more. Yeah. Did you actually stick to your budget? I think we did. <laughs> no one has said anything. <laughs> We're not fired. Excellent. We're coming excellent. back. <laughs> well, um, you know, I as I say, I was really grateful to have seen the play, and uh, I think it's extremely successful production. So I wanted to thank you, and obviously Lucas, who isn't here anymore, for um, joining me to talk about it. Thank you so much. 